You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Okay, Judges 19 through uh, 21. These final two stories in the book of Judges, one we looked at last week and today we're going to look at the final one. What they show us is where life can go, even for God's people, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In these final chapters of Judges, we've heard one refrain repeated. I think it's repeated four times in some fashion. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so what we're going to read about today is when the people of God go off the rails because they're not submitted to God as king, and everyone just sort of determines what they want to do, And we see what kind of chaos, moral depravity and chaos ensues from that. And while we have read throughout the book of Judges some tragic stories, really we've read a number of grievous accounts. It's a dark book. Um, And while we've read many difficult passages, no passages prepare us for the violence that we're about to read about today. Uh, in this final story. Tim Keller said of this final section, the view of humanity without God is so bleak that these passages are almost never preached upon or even studied. It's not a passage that someone would just pick out and say, let's just go for this passage. Uh, It's assigned, if you go through the book, we land on it. Uh, But it's one that is rarely even talked about. Um, But today we are going to talk about it, and we're going to find hope in the end. Midway through this week, or actually towards the end of the week, I changed the message title. I had titled this message, We Need a King, because that's where the book ends. There was no king in Israel. We need a king. But I retitled it, We Have a King. So it's going to end on a bright note, because that's the truth. We're not sitting in a situation where we're looking for a king to rule the universe. We have one and know him. So it does end on a on a good note. Now, because we're covering three chapters, what that means is I'm going to need to summarize big chunks. So I'm going to read some, talk about it, then, then summarize the next section, then read some and summarize, and then at the end make some applications both from this passage and from the book of Judges to us and to the church broadly today. So here we go, Judges 19 verses 1 through 3. In those days when there was no king in Israel, A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. The the chapter starts out, in those days there was no king in Israel. Now this is code language to communicate that what you're about to read is okay with the people of Israel, but it's not okay with God. You're about to read a section where people are doing things and acting in ways that God never endorses and explicitly opposes. That's what we are about to see. And we see this from the beginning. 
that from the beginning there are problems with this Levite, there are problems with the practice of sex, there are problems with marriage. Now, a Levite was uh, sort of a man of God, we might say, in the Old Old Testament. Uh, it was an individual who was called to serve the priests in the temple and to assist them. And we see here that the Levite takes a concubine. A concubine is sort of a second-class wife. Uh, they are used for sex and sometimes for the purpose of bearing children to the man who takes them. So from the very beginning, we see a disordered practice of sex and a disordered practice of marriage because this woman was taken to serve and fulfill this uh, man's desires, but she wasn't given the status of a wife. And, And it's completely contrary to God's design. Throughout the three chapters that we're about to read, we're going to see how God's design for sexuality and for marriage are disobeyed. God's uh, original design, which is found at the beginning of the Bible, is this, that he creates men and women equal as image bearers. They are each created with equal dignity, worth, and value, Um, and they're created as uh, equal to calling to his uh, purposes in the world. And so what we're going to find throughout this passage is that there is a devaluing of women in particular, and it starts right here when this woman is connected to this guy, not in a meaningful marriage, but as one to a concubine was one who's primarily used for uh, sex. So we see uh, in addition to another wife or wives we see. So we see from the beginning that this is a breakdown in God's design for marriage. At the beginning of the Bible, we see God creates equal uh, men and women, equal in dignity, worth, and value, and he joins together in marriage in a lifelong covenant commitment in one flesh, one man and one woman. But at this season in the time of Israel, there is disordered sexuality that is opposed to that. Marriage is between one man and one woman as God designed. It's not between two people of the same sex. It's not between multiple people of either sex, and yet we see this sort of disordered sexuality throughout the three chapters that we are going to read. Well, the nameless woman begins by being sexually unfaithful. That's where it all begins. This, this Levite, who has no business having a concubine to begin with, uh, this Levite uh, it, it takes her and it says in verse 2 that she was unfaithful to him. It literally reads that she plays the harlot. So she, she is unfaithful. She returns to her father's house for four months, and after four months, this This guy decides he will go back and get her. So he goes to her father's house, and then in verses 4 through 9, this is what we read, that her father uh, appeals to the guy, the Levite, to stick around. He shows extreme hospitality to him, and he he says to stick around, and, and he keeps appealing to him, and he does it one day and the next. And finally, the guy sticks around for four days, but at the end of the four days, he says, we're going. So they take off, and in verses 10 through 15, we read of their journey. They take off, and as they get going, nightfall is coming, and uh, they're outside the city of Jebus. And uh, the, the Levite says, hey, I don't want to go in and stay in Jebus. 
because Jebus is uh, a pagan city. It later becomes Jerusalem, but at this point, it's a Canaanite city. So we're not safe if we go in there. Let's go up the road a little bit to Gibeah, he says, because Gibeah is a city in the tribe of Benjamin, and in that tribe, we will be safe. In other words, if we go to a city where our fellow brothers and sisters, Jews, live, they will show hospitality to us, but we are in danger if we are in a Canaanite city. So they go into the city of Gibeah, they go to the town square, they sit down, and as was cust- it was custom, was uh, if you were in a city waiting at the town square, someone would come in from their work day and invite you to lodge with them for the evening. Well, no one offers until an old man comes in, and this is what happens in verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into the house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, and they ate and drank. No one extends hospitality to them except one guy who's not even from Gibeah. So we're getting a picture of Gibeah and what what life is like in this city of Benjamin. Uh, He's from somewhere else, but he's just there on work, and he's coming in from the fields, and he has a place to stay, and he says, I'll take care of you. But don't stay in the square overnight. So here we get this sort of ominous feeling, this ominous idea, which is going to be fleshed out in the next verses, this ominous idea that it's not safe in Gibeah, that that they avoided a pagan town because they didn't want to be around uh, Canaanites who might harm them. They wanted to be in the town of the people of Israel, the people of the covenant, God's people, because they would be safe. And yet what we're going to find is that God's people pose a great danger to this couple. And that's what we read in verses 22 through 30. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter." And his concubine, let me bring them out now. Violate and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. 
But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The host is eating with his guests and drinking, and all of a sudden some worthless fellows, they're described as, come and start beating on his door and demand that they give up the Levite so that they may rape him. That's what the word no means. It means to know sexually. The original readers would instantly have read this and picked up the following fact. This is very similar, almost identical to what happened in Genesis 19 in the city of Sodom, a a pagan city where men in the city made the same demand of the host of a house in Sodom. Now, it was different. The guests were actually angels. The the men didn't know that, but, uh, but still, it was the same thing happening where they make a demand, bring the men out that we may have sex with them and abuse them. And we're supposed to make that connection. We're supposed to read this and say, well, this is just like Sodom, a a, a sinful city that God ultimately destroyed. What we're supposed to read is say, Israel is functioning as a pagan people. They're acting like those who are enemies of God, not like God's people. This is supposed to Uh, be astonishing and repulsive, not only because what happens, but because it's happening among God's people. Well, the host goes out to them and says, don't do this thing. Don't act wickedly, verse 13. He pleads with them not to do this vile or outrageous thing, verse 24. But his response is wicked as well. As a dad, rather than defend and protect his virgin daughter, even if it cost him his own life, he offers her up. He offers her up, verse 24, along with the concubine, that you might violate them. He offers her up to be raped. He offers the concubine up. And in a horrific act of cowardice, Rather than fight, rather than defend 
his concubine. The Levite, in verse 25, quote, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. He forces this woman out to the crowd of uh, worthless fellows. They rape and abuse her all night. Indescribable suffering. The Levite apparently sleeps because it says, verse 27, her master woke up in the morning. Even that language shows that uh, at this point he, in essence, owned her. And uh, he wakes up and he comes to the door and there she is. She's not moving. Her hand is reaching for the threshold. And he simply says to her, get up. Let us be going. He speaks to her like an animal get going. She doesn't speak. She is apparently dead. The text doesn't say she's dead at this point. She's clearly unconscious, but she's likely dead at this point. And uh, he puts her on the donkey and they go their way. He takes her to his home. And, And throughout, the author wants us to feel the inhumanity of this whole affair, but there's no preparation for the inhumanity of what follows next. When he gets her to his house, he ultimately dismembers her. He cuts her up in pieces and sends her to the various tribes, 12 pieces, 12 tribes of Israel, and she send, he sends her out. And the entire environment just shows us how far Israel has fallen. This woman, the the image bearer of God, created by God, is treated as one to be used and discarded. The point is that God's people have become just like the violent, cold-hearted cultures all around them. They're indistinguishable. They're in the promised land with God's law so that they can live differently. Think about all of their advantages. They have God's covenant, his promise. They have his law. They have the tabernacle where they worship God, where he's uniquely present among them. Think of that. That they, they, have, um, they have his great deliverance from Egypt where he rescued them from slavery. They have multiple rescues from these judges in the book of Judges who have freed them when they've been oppressed by other nations. They have event after event, generation and after generation of God's goodness and faithfulness to them, and they have become utterly unfaithful to God, practicing just like the nations around them. When the people all receive parts of this woman's body. They say nothing like this has ever happened in Israel since we were delivered from Egypt. Well, here's what happens in chapter 20. I'm going to summarize the whole chapter for you. Chapter 20, all of Israel gathers at a city called Mizpah so that the Levite can tell them what happened. Uh, He can explain what they received delivered to them. He explains that his concubine was abused and killed. Uh, He leaves out the detail that he pushed her 
out and gave her up, he conveniently uh, sort of leaves that detail out. And everyone in Israel cries for justice. And so they get ready for battle. They go to Benjamin and they get to the tribe of Benjamin and they, they basically say, give up the rapists. Give up the rapists. Verse 13 of chapter 20, they say, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But Benjamin would not listen to them. Benjamin would not listen. They would prefer to be Sodom than to practice biblical justice upon the offenders. That's what they would prefer. And so there are three rounds of battle. Benjamin says, bring it on. The first round of battle, they defeat Israel. The second round of battle, they defeat Israel. The third round of battle, Israel defeats Benjamin roundly and kills all their soldiers except 600, which make a getaway. So there's 600 Benjaminite soldiers who escape. Uh, And Israel then does something that is horrendous. It is way beyond God's biblical justice. Uh, Biblically, they could have executed. It was just to execute the rapist murderers. But they do something beyond that. They go to Benjamin and they kill all the women. And they kill all the children. And they kill all the animals. And they burn down all the cities. They destroy Benjamin. So that all that is left is 600 men who have escaped. Everyone else in Benjamin is died. It's essentially a, a tribal, they're attempting a tribal genocide to get rid of one of the tribes of God's people. And in verse 21, they realize what's happened and they seek to fix it through, well, continuous, grievous means. Here's what we read in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, that's when they gathered before battle, they had sworn no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left? We will not give them any of our daughters. Will we not give them any of our daughters for wives? So what we find is when they gathered for battle at Mizpah, they took a rash vow. This happens elsewhere in the Bible. Jephthah took a vow that... uh, that he held and executed, uh, sacrificed his own daughter. That's how dark it was in Israel. We read that story earlier. So they take this vow. God didn't tell them to take this vow, but they chose to take a vow that we're going to go to battle and none of us will intermarry with Benjamin. So we will not give our daughters to that tribe and uh, so that they will ultimately uh, wipe out that tribe. But then in verse 3, they come and they blame God. This was their plan. 
But they, they, God never told them to kill everybody in Benjamin. They say, Lord, why did this happen, verse 3? Why did this happen that we're missing a tribe? Well, it happened because their bloodthirst, their revenge, their, their doing what was right in their own eyes and, and forgetting about God and His law. Uh, that, that's what the problem is. And so what are they going to do? They're grieving that Benjamin is no longer going to be among them because they're not going to give their daughters to marry, and there's 600 men that could marry and propagate the the tribe in an ongoing way, but there's no wives for them. So what are they going to do? Well, they remember, hey, we made another rash vow when we came to Mizpah, and we said anybody that doesn't come battle with us, we'll kill them. So who didn't come? And they realize, oh, Jabesh Gilead, the men of Jabesh Gilead did not join us. So here's what happens in verses 8 through 15. They say, great, let's go destroy them. So they send 12,000 of their men to another group of Israel, to another people of Israel. Again, God didn't tell them to take this vow, but they took this vow. They go to the people of Jabesh Gilead. They kill all the men. They kill all the women. They kill all the children, except they spared any young women that were virgins. And there were 400 of those. So they take 400 young women from the land where all their families have been executed and killed by their brothers in Israel. They take the 400 young virgins. They bring them to the Benjaminites and say, okay, there's 600 of you left. Here's 400 wives. That leaves 200 who don't have wives. And so they concoct another plan to provide 200 wives, and this is what they do. Verse uh, verse 16, chapter 21, and we'll read to the end of the book. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left, meaning the 200, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is this yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush. Listen to that language. Lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we'll say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to the number from the dancers who they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days... There was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They want to avoid a tribe being blotted out, is the language they use. And so they come up with this plan. They're not going to give their daughters to them because they made a vow. Uh, So what is their plan? Kidnapping. We'll kidnap wives. That's what we will do. And so they say, look, there is a festival. They tell the 200 Benjaminites, look, guys, just hide out in ambush and then wait. There's this wine festival or whatever it is. It's in the vineyards. Um, So when the ladies, when the young ladies are doing the dances that the ladies do, uh, then you run down there and you grab a wife and you don't stop running until you make it back to Benjamin. And this is how low it got in Israel. When the fathers complain that you stole their daughters, when the brothers come to defend their sisters and complain that you stole them, here's what we'll tell them. We'll just explain to them, look, they needed a wife, and don't worry about it. You didn't break the vow. You didn't give your daughter. She was stolen, and everybody will be okay with that. That's how dark it has gotten. That's how perverted the logic is. That's what it looks like when everybody just comes up with their own idea apart from the Scripture and just does what's right in their eyes. That's what happens. This whole section is what happens when, when, when the Word is forgotten, when God's people stray their own way, when they leave His standards for sex when they leave his standards for marriage, when they leave his standards for justice, and they come up with their own justice and their own plans and all, this is what happens. This is what happens. And that's why it closes by telling everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God wants us to feel, to experience the grief of those who suffer in all of these situations. Imagine these 200 young women Their entire family's killed. Everything they know, gone. And the trauma of just being kidnapped and taken as a bride, captive as a bride. The Lord wants us to feel that. To realize what happens when when women or anyone is devalued and treated inhumanely. How do we apply something this dark to our lives? Well, I think there's a few things to emphasize from the book of Judges. One is, we underestimate the power of sin. We really do. God demonstrates here what it's like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And we can look at all that happened in chapter 19 and 21, and we can look at everything, we can say, I don't do those things. I mean, if I ask for a show of hands who, who's, who's participated in tribal genocide, there's no, probably no hands that go up today, probably not. We, we can look and separate ourselves and say, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not playing in that league when it comes to sin. And we can look at this passage and we can distance ourselves and we can say, those aren't the things I do, so it's irrelevant to me. 
And we miss the point that God is sounding the alarm and he's warning us against the root causes of those sins. Of course the sins are heinous. But he doesn't end with a statement like, in those days there was no king in Israel, so don't do really, really, really bad stuff like they did. He doesn't say that. He says, rather, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Oh, that's something that is eminently relatable to us. We dare not distance ourselves from the worst sins of this passage and think we're off the hook because the book doesn't end with remember the worst sins of the passage. The book ends with independence from God. Dale Davis in his commentary on this passage says of this last verse, verse 21, 25, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He says, hence, 21, 25 expresses the ultimate perversity of every man demanding the right to be his own Lord insisting on following the dictates of his own glands. The problem is not sins, but sin. That declaration of independence, whether stated viciously or politely, which says, yes, I want to be like God, calling my own shots. See Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3, 5, and 6, where the serpent's lie is, you can be like God. He makes a great point here that we should all be struck by this last verse and realize the power, the alluring power of wanting to be my own Lord, of wanting to determine what I want to do. That is the problem in the book of Judges. They chase all kinds of idols. We've been looking at it for months. They chase all kinds of idols in a, in, a, in a desire to be free from God's constraints, his good, kind, loving, flourishing restraints, we might add, but to be free from all of that, to do their own thing, to worship their own idols. And the reality is that your idols may be much more respectable than theirs. Our idols may be things that we've looked at, like achievement, and power, and success, and wealth, and self-sufficiency. Our idols may be our appearance, our reputation, our own personal morality. Those may be our idols, and they look pretty good in this culture, but consider the principle. Just as Israel became indistinguishable from its surrounding culture, so have we when we live independently of him. That's the point of connection here, that they're acting just like their culture. And maybe our culture isn't doing everything in chapters 9 through 21. Okay, maybe this doesn't describe the level of violence in our culture. But the principle is the same, and that's why he doesn't end with the practice. He ends with the principle. And the principle is the greatest danger is that we would take our eyes off Jesus Christ as Lord and become our own lords, writing our own story, living according to our own narrative, oftentimes in what is respectable ways in our culture. And when we do, we've become just like the culture, and that's the warning. That's the warning of the entire book, that we need a king to rule over us. And that's the second idea. Not only do we underestimate the power of sin, we underestimate our need for a king. 
the idea is that if there was a king in Israel, somebody would set things right. Verse 25 leaves us with saying there's no king in Israel. We want a king to bring order where there is so much injustice and harm to others in this society going on right now. So much bloodshed and hatred and rash sort of living according purely to our own desires, doing whatever we want. This is where it all ends up. We need a ruler over our lives. And that's why the foundational confession of Christianity, you read this in the New Testament, the foundational confession is this, Jesus is Lord. That means ruler, king, sovereign, authority. Now, he's all kinds of things to us, right? He's the lamb. He's the healer. He's the forgiver. He's our deliverer. He's our savior. He's our substitute. Uh, Many, many truths about Jesus in the New Testament. But foundational is this. He rules. Jesus is Lord. And that means he is Lord over all of life. He's brought his kingdom rule into our lives so that now as his followers, we can live life in the way he intended, serving his purposes in the world. He is restoring our lives and restoring his people that we represent him on the planet because he graciously, gloriously rules over all of our lives and calls us into his kingdom service. So the warning of the book of Judges when it was written was there needs to be leadership and everybody needs to look to God to rule us and not do what's right in our eyes, but do what's right in his eyes. That's the message of the book of Judges. And so when we see that, we realize that the book of Judges gives a great warning of danger to the people of God. But the warning of danger is not out there. It's in here. The purpose of the book of Judges is to show us that the greatest threat to the church is the church. The greatest threat to the people of God is when the people of God get their eyes off their king and start doing whatever they want to do. The problem in the book of Judges is not, boy, Canaanites are acting like Canaanites. The problem is Israel's acting like Canaanites. And that's the challenge for the church today. And it's the message that we are deaf to so often. Not only is it wearying, but it is dangerous. The voices that tell us the greatest threat to the health of God's people is out there. When the Bible teaches the greatest threat to God's people is in here. We have got lists We've got lists selling books, hosting conferences that will fearmonger you into believing that all of these outside entities are the greatest threat to God's people. And Judges says, no, it's God's people. Who kills Benjamin? It's not the Canaanites. It's Israel. We've got a list that we say, you know what? They are the threat, whereas the reality is the people of God who have the revelation of God can abandon it and self-destruct. We spend so much time, it's, it's them, it's the media. Hey, the media is going to mead, okay? It's entertainment. The entertainers are going to entertain. That's what entertainers do. 
That, 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 we think the threat's out there. It's the education system. It's the government. It's socialism. It's right-wing extremism bordering on fascism. It's the LGBTQ agenda. It's the cancel culture. It's whatever the newest thing is that's going to destroy the church. And the Bible would tell us the greatest threat to the church is when we lose our grip on the king, when we lose our grip on the gospel. It's not when the world acts like the world. It's when the church acts like the world. That is the greatest threat. We must keep our eyes on Jesus and humble ourselves, repent, not seek to do what's right in our eyes, but what's right in his eyes. Judges is not about the world being worldly. It's about believers turning their back on the God who's given them his word, his law, his worship at the tabernacle, his rescue from Egypt, his presence, his promise to through them bring salvation to the world. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there are no opposing forces to the church. Of course there are. But read your New Testament and show me how many verses are about big, bad, scary Rome and how Rome's going to destroy the church. They're not there. The threat is the church losing the gospel. That's the threat of the New Testament. You say, well, the book of Revelation talks about Rome. and the Yeah, it does. But the book of Revelation reveals that the world in pictures of dragons and beasts and stuff like this shows us that yes, the world is evil and yes, the world does persecute the people of God, but it, it peels back the surface to show no matter what you see, God rules over all. So church, be faithful to him. What is the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation about? It's not about the danger of Rome. It's you have lost your first love. Be careful that you not drift. That's the appeal. It's easy to say how bad they are because I feel good about how good we are. It's biblical to say, oh God, have mercy upon us, the people of God. Help us get along. We can't even worship together. We can't even agree as the people of God. We've got a celebrity culture with leaders committing financial and sexual sin. We've got the church bringing in the practices of the world and embracing them and winking at it like the world standard for sexuality is, is acceptable to us and the world's politics is acceptable to us. We must repent and say, God, have mercy on us and keep us true and steady. Finally, we underestimate the grace of God. Hey, for those who have ears to hear, the grace of God appears in these last verses. It appears dark, but look, look at this. Verse 24, uh, verse 23. The people of Benjamin, uh, let's see, they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. Israel departed from there. Everyone went to his own tribe and family, and they built out every man to his inheritance. When Sodom, who was not the people of God, when they sinned, God destroyed them. When Benjamin sinned, he rebuilt them. 
God had mercy, even in judgment, God had mercy upon the people of God. This is what happens. God shows mercy upon us. And, and not only that, but, but I, think, I think not only do they return to their inheritance, which means they have a future, they have an inheritance. Not only that, but look at verse 25 again. It's worth noting. In those days, the author's saying, we're not in those days. There was a dark time, but it was back there. God's people continue on. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Judges is written from a vantage point where people aren't living that way, where it's being told as a story of this is the way things were, but God's people continued. As long as Israel is breathing, there is hope. As long as you are breathing, there is hope. As long as your family member and your neighbor and your coworker is alive, there is hope for them. God's story is not finished. God is not done. He continues on. There was no king, but a king comes. They get Saul. Didn't work out so well. They get David. Worked out well. They get Solomon. Uh, uh, you know, come see, come saw, right? They get Solomon. But then in the New Testament, we get the one who's called this, the one greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. The king of all kings comes. And we see that even though Israel blows it, and that just sounds, I don't even have words. Those are too weak of words. They do more than blow it. They defy God and they harm others in evil ways. But even so, God is faithful to them when they are not faithful. Even in the dark, God has a hold on his people. You may not feel his hand. You may not see it. It may seem dark, but God has a hold on you if you are his. And even when we drift, he has control. This is grace. Jesus promises to build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. No outside forces will take it down and ultimately inside forces won't take it down because he will be faithful to his people. And we don't read this and say, well, man, judges did really bad stuff. You know, they're like a 10, pegging a 10 on sin. I'll just go up to about an 8 because if God let them go, he's going to let me go. No, that's totally misreading it. The Bible says the kindness of God, the mercy of God, should lead us to repentance. The mercy of God leads us to repent. So we read this, and, and we aren't to presume upon grace. We aren't to say, you know, marriage and sexual holiness, they don't matter. No, we don't say that. We don't say, oh, violence doesn't matter. We don't say, hey, demeaning some other person doesn't matter. No, we say, it all matters, Lord. Help us. Help us. You, the king who has come. Well, I don't want to end the story in Judges because it points to Jesus, but I don't even want to end the story with Jesus' first coming because the way it all moves, it moves us, Judges moves us to Jesus. There is no king. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. To the king has come, and then ultimately to the king who returns. Revelation 21 says this, that in the end, this is what happens. There is uh, the ultimate it says in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. You read these passages that make you weep. Know this, God will wipe every tear from his people's eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that's the king, said, I am making all things new. That's what we're moving towards. We're moving towards God making all things new. In the meantime, let's keep our eyes on the king who's on that throne, wiping tears away in the last day. Let's keep our eyes on that king. And by his grace, let's embrace his word. Let's submit to his good and faithful rule. Let's repent where we are just like the world. And let's love the world rather than set ourselves up as the self-righteous ones who sit in judgment on the world. Let's grieve and have broken hearts for people that are blind and lost in the world. And let's go to them with the same good news that has saved us. Not setting ourselves up in some kind of a war with everybody, but bringing the good news to them and inviting them to know the King who is making all things new. Let's pray.